everyone and welcome to Overtime, where leaders come to learn. I'm your host, Jillian Davis, author of First Time Leader and founder of Crescent and Maine, an agency that helps transform fast-growing companies through leadership, culture, and talent. For those of you that are new to Overtime, first, I want to welcome you. And secondly, I just want to remind everyone why Overtime was created in the first place. So this was designed for managers looking to level up their leadership and for us to be able to provide inspiration, tools, and tricks on how to lead others effectively. My guests are therefore a combination of practitioner managers who've been gracious enough to share with us their stories, as well as a variety of experts that allow us to dig deep into relevant subject matters. And our guest today is just that. Abby is a partner at Multiple. Multiple helps technology companies to nail their purpose, fire up their people, and build their platforms for growth. You can check them out at wearemultiple.com. Abby brings to our episode a wealth of knowledge, and it's no surprise when you look at her background. Abby spent her youth living in different parts of the world, from the U.S. to the U.K. to Kenya and Egypt, driving her ongoing fascination with what makes people and cultures tick. Her career has spanned public affairs, international development, political risk, and technology investment. She has applied her analytical skills on issues as varied as robotics, refugees, and ransom negotiations. In 2012, Abby moved to Facebook, EMEA, to become Joanna Shields' Chief of Staff, where she gained insight into how a unique corporate culture can contribute to rapid growth. She subsequently developed her operational, team-building, people, and entrepreneurial skills as Chief of Staff for serial entrepreneur and investor Shaquille Khan. Most recently, Abby was Interim Director at the Philanthropic Community Rainmaker Foundation. Like in all episodes, we cover a lot of ground in such a short time. However, actually today, you might notice that I went over the usual 20-minute allocated time that I like to stick the podcast episodes to, and this one's a full 30 minutes. I could not stop the conversation. It was that interesting. We really kind of drilled down into culture. Abby provides an interesting perspective on what she calls culture codification. And what she means by that is tying together the vision, the kind of high-level stuff that drives everyone together down to how do you hire and how do you talk about the company internally and externally. I think it's a great way of positioning that and we also talk about who who ultimately is responsible for culture. In Abby's eyes, this is everyone, but that does not mean leaders can wash their hands of responsibility. There does require to be a steer and direction when it comes to growing, shaping, preserving the right kind of culture. I find a culture a really interesting topic. Uh, we've talked about culture before on this episode with Sally, uh, before on this podcast with Sally. I think we're going to be talking about culture on and on again within the Overtime podcast series, mostly because it's such an intangible thing that becomes the responsibility of leaders and therefore worth discussing at length to help different managers in different contexts understand not only the role that they play in shaping it and keeping it, but also the actions they can take to change it. In fast-growing companies, it can be hard to tie a culture down, so to speak, because it might change as the company will change. 
I'm seeing that a lot with a couple of clients that I work with. They're going through growth. They're going through uh, changes in their product proposition. They're going through changes in um, how they want to, you know, deliver their brand. They want to change how they work internally. And all of this can effectively change culture if it's not solidified at the beginning. And what this means is you've got to be able to adapt. You've got to understand and kind of translate if you do have set values, how does that play out in this current state of change, in this current state of transition? For example, if you have transparency as a value, that might mean something different when your business is stable and maintaining versus when it's growing and changing. That might mean people, transparency will mean a bit more radical candor versus, uh, you know, leaving that feedback to another day because you don't have time to hold back. You've just got to go for it. So important if you are responsible for any kind of change management within your role or within your team to start thinking about how does the culture play into that? How, how does your role play into shaping that culture? And if you look at the values within your organization, and if you don't have values, look at the behaviors you feel you need to achieve those goals And what are some actions that you can take to drive those forward, to reinforce those behaviors? An easy one is to recognize it. So verbally recognize that often, you know, even better if you can recognize a behavior that you feel is in line with the culture you want to build or reinforce. Uh, If you can do that in front of the team so everyone kind of sees, oh, okay, I get it. We all like positive reinforcement. Most, most of us like it when it's done in front of others. That will depend on who you're talking to. Um, so recognizing it is, is an immediate action you can take. Rewarding that, if it's within your responsibility to reward in some way. This doesn't always mean a financial bonus. It can mean a little gift or an acknowledgement. Um, if someone's been super collaborative in the way that you want them to be collaborative, then make sure everybody knows it and make sure the individual knows it. And they'll be encouraged to reinforce, continue, um, get others to to live within that behavior. Um, Another thing that we cover in today's podcast is onboarding, which I think will ultimately be its own podcast and will likely be an article. Um, You may not know, but my co-author, George Bratt, has built a business uh, on doing executive onboarding. Um, It's called Prime Genesis. You can check them out at primegenesis.com. And, you know, working with him and also witnessing in my executive recruitment days, just, gosh, awful uh, onboarding or almost non-existent onboarding programs. And it, when I was witnessing this, these were large established corporations. These were not new startups that don't know any better. And as Abby and I kind of, you know, discuss is the amount of effort put into hiring and the little amount of effort that's put into onboarding. I have a a close friend of mine recently started a job in a well-known apparel business, luxury business. You know, when you think of their brand name, you just think beauty and simplicity and, you know, every little detail has been thought through. And when he started in the new job, he arrived uh, before his boss, which is fine, that happens. Um, not ideal, but it can happen. And uh, the his boss's boss's boss, who was the only one there at the time, 
had to kind of go around and go, right, where's your desk? Um, I think you can use this one. It was dusty. It had other people's papers on it. Um, it took him ages to get a laptop. It totally was out of sync of what the brand external brand values for this company were. And that's usually the problem with onboarding. And when you're asking your employees to think about the customer, put the customer first, um, put yourself in their shoes, your brand should also be reinforced internally in everything you do. So something to think about. But like I said, we're going to have a, a whole session on onboarding because it's so important. It will save you a lot of money, um, a lot of money, a lot of time and a lot of headaches. Uh, because when you don't properly onboard in, uh, someone, that's when, you know, they don't perform in the way that you expected. There's uh, confusion, there's misalignment, um, and that's very often down to poor or lack of onboarding. Uh, lots to discuss. really hope you enjoyed today's episode. And uh, please share if you think of a manager, you know someone that you feel this would be appropriate for and do reach out if you have any feedback or you want to cover a specific topic uh, on the Overtime Podcast. Hi, Abby. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Good. Um, thanks for being one of our Overtime guests. I thought it would be most valuable if we just kicked it off with you giving a little bit of overview as to where you've come from, what you're doing now, and where you want to go with it. Uh, well, I... I'm originally a linguist. I studied languages at university and uh, I, I'm now a partner at a consultancy called Multiple. Um, we work with typically post-series A companies on scaling them uh, through purpose, people and platforms. And the thing that I get really excited about is how a uh, great culture can galvanise uh, an army of people into building a, an incredibly successful, sustainable business. Exciting. Yes. So from, from languages to where you are now, what, where did that transition into being interested in culture come from? Uh, there's a, I think there's a strong correlation between wanting to learn a language and wanting to foster communication within an organisation. Um, so much of what makes the difference between success and failure in business is communication and mm -hmm. it's such an integral part of culture and going and living in different countries and studying different languages you start to realise that you can't just assume that people will understand what you mean or that necessarily your way of doing things is how everybody else does things yeah. um, so I think the language is coupled with a fascination for social anthropology um, through a somewhat meandering, <laughs> circuitous route uh, led me to a fascinating fascination with culture. And do you feel that that kind of communication piece, there, there's obviously a lot of work to do around that. Where do you think it goes away? Um, I think one of the things I've noticed from companies I've worked at, big and small, is the danger of assumption. Yes. Um, it sounds like quite a simple observation. It is a quite a simple observation, but um, what tends to happen is when you're under a lot of pressure, when you're in a, a high growth scenario, with a fast changing scenario, um, there's a tendency to want to 
simply get things done and that often leads to people failing uh, to explain adequately mm-hmm. um, what they want on a on sort of day-to-day level. But on the higher levels, um, one of the things we see at multiple a lot is you can get so embroiled in that day-to-day you fail to stop and take a step back and go, how do we want to articulate uh, the strategic level communications around purpose, mission and vision and values, for example, and then communicate those internally as well as externally. Um, And that's important not just for helping people to understand who you are and what you stand for, but also, frankly, to drive strategic focus within the business. Mm -hmm. Because it gets everyone kind of... Well, one reinforces the why and aligns the whole company as to you know, the direction that they take. I've, I've seen the same, I've seen it done well, I've seen it done well-intentioned, but kind of lands the wrong way. And you do create a lot of misintended confusion and anxiety. Mm. And when we're anxious, we don't produce good work. What, if, if you were to talk to a, a manager or someone in a leadership team in a growing company, what are some of the things that they can think about and act on immediately? Uh, I think to your point about um, conditions in which we do our best work and, and how anxiety might play a part, I mean, one of the key things uh, that is, well, it's an integral part of startup life is uncertainty. Yeah. And, you know, even if you have a pretty high appetite for it, as most people who gravitate towards startups do, yeah. um, where you can as a manager alleviate some of that uncertainty, um, I think you, you create an environment where people are more likely to be successful, focused and productive. Um, if you're not able to perhaps accurately describe where the organisation is going to be in six months' time, you know, that's totally fair enough. But by constantly, consistently communicating what the purpose is, what the vision is, what you know, each quarter's objectives are, you're empowering people to have the information that they need to get on with their jobs Mm -hmm. and that actually creates operational efficiencies because they can be more proactive and more autonomous but it also fosters the slightly more qualitative nuanced uh, alignment and engagement that people feel when they feel that they're connected Mm -hmm. their work is connected to the the sort of higher level objectives of the organization exactly yeah and i think that a lot of effort has been put into um, startups in that realm but i think just as importantly, larger companies need to follow suit because you want to create that sense of autonomy, that sense of purpose every day, not just at all hands or mm-hmm. not just at offsites, but every day you're connected to the greater kind of good. Um, I think Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, famously said after getting some VC money, um, and he asked this VC, you know, what can I do to make sure I don't lose it? And the VC responded, don't fuck up the culture. And it, all, it took... I think he he wrote, it took him a while to really get what he meant. But in the end, when you've got good culture, and with that he meant trust, um, autonomy, you don't need as many processes and kind of corporate structures in Mm -hmm. place. I think it's an an interesting um, viewpoint to explore because on the one hand, I believe you can't be obsolete of process Mm -hmm. and, you know, not process for process sake, but you know, it's finding that balance between trusting employees to, to have their autonomy, but also creating a foundation that they can learn from or, you know, everyone's on that same layer. 
what do you think, you know, for any kind of manager or founder that's starting out, um, is the right balance for process and trust on the one hand? Processes can limit you, but they can also liberate you. I think they get a bit of a bad rap because so often we've all been there. We've been subject to processes that are unnecessary and burdensome, but we often take for granted the processes that exist that actually allow us to do our job, that facilitate us to do our job. Um, Google have uh, a great system. Um, Laszlo Bock talks about it in Work Rules where... You know, people have an opportunity regularly to feedback on processes that they mm. deem superfluous because sometimes they are um, over a period of time things that you needed before no longer become necessary and that's totally fine and having regular reviews and I think as a manager this is something you can empower people to do quite easily um, where you look at the processes in place and listen to people and, and, and ask them you know what current processes or systems do we have that make it harder for you to do your job mm. Um, people on different levels and in different departments are often the best placed to report back on that and you can create all sorts of efficiency but also an opportunity for people to have their say and to feel the buy-in that comes from that Um, so I actually am a fan of processes where I think they give people the structure and information they need Mm -hmm. to get on with their jobs I'm not a fan of processes that cater always to the lowest common denominator because, um, and I think that's what you often see strangling innovation in organisations as they grow. People overcorrect yeah. when something goes wrong. I think they look at one incident where maybe there was an information leak or maybe somebody behaved inappropriately or uh, some massive opportunity was lost or a great mistake was made. And rather than take those lessons on and go, okay, well, how can we take that forward? They they absolutely seek to nullify any possibility of it ever happening again yes and that may work from the perspective of you won't make that same mistake but it also throws out the baby with the bathwater often yeah. yeah and I think as you scale as an organisation that is probably one of your biggest risks that you seek to reduce risk at every opportunity and you end up basically snuffing out any chance of people taking the right kind of risk Do you see that often, because I find, you know, with fast-growing companies, there's a lot of pressure, and that level of pressure can create blinders because it's so focused on growth that you actually miss innovation opportunities. Absolutely. Do you see that a lot? I think probably less so innovation opportunities, because we're working with companies between Series A Mm -hmm. on to sort of Series C, so they're still innovating heavily even though post-product market fit there's a lot of opportunities for them whether that's in new markets or new product lines but where I think they're going wrong sometimes is they're creating infrastructure for future failure by overcorrecting and sometimes that's because we want to appease investors sometimes Mm -hmm. it's um, because we don't trust people within our organisation to use their common sense and to make the smart choice, in which case um, I think there's a broader, more important question, which is rather than what processes do we need to put in place to make sure this happens again, uh, this doesn't happen again, are we hiring the right people? Are we giving them the information that they need 
you know, how can we get this right as managers? It's very easy to fall into a mindset of apportioning blame. Yes. Um, and it's really natural and it's really human. Um, but it actually sets everyone up for failure in the long term, I think. Very much. So how do you avoid, you know, hiring the wrong people? <laughs> That's the million-dollar billion question. Billion-dollar question, yeah. Um, at multiple, we advocate... Are for culture codification mm-hmm. is probably the first step in that process. If you haven't got a clear purpose, a per- um, personal one, uh, I think I- purpose for the organisation, okay, uh, led typically by the founders and, yeah. and and senior management team, but crucially must have some level of buy-in from the rest of the team. Yeah, um, it's very hard to hire the right people because without the purpose and then the values that stem from that i.e. the conditions you need to create to fulfil your objective it's hard for people to make an informed decision about whether or not they can thrive and really create value in that environment so by setting it out you put a stake in the ground as to who you are and what you stand for that makes it easier for your people and the people outside the business to make that decision but it also means as you go further down the line and as you said earlier different pressures come into play you're less likely to be swayed for the wrong reasons and Mm. drawn perhaps in another direction Um, and even at the risk of abandoning the purpose or compromising it in some way so I think that's really important and that culture codification can then serve as the basis not just for recruiters to have a more informed insight into what sort of people they should be sending your way, whether that's in-house or outside, mm-hmm. um, but also form a really crucial part of the onboarding process, which, to your question about how do you avoid hiring <laughs> the right people, sometimes you get the right people in, but then you fail to make the most of the potential that they represent, right? Yeah, so very much. if you've got a really good onboarding process in which you can uh, inculcate or indoctrinate uh, the newbies with this culture as you've all agreed it yeah um, you're going to drive retention you're going to drive the efficacy of, of all of those people that's a great opportunity yeah often over under completely overlooked yeah as absolutely. a key part of that employee timeline yeah and then actually I think you're completely right because it's overlooked and yet when you think about customer acquisition yeah if you bring in a new customer there's this window of opportunity when you've made them fall in love with you at the beginning where you're doing everything you can to try and cement that relationship so it's a long-term thing. Mm -hmm. Why would we think about employees in a different way? Mm -hmm. And you have got this wonderful asset of a human being with all of its potential that you can maximise in this certain window. They've got a great fresh perspective on your organisation. They've got so much that they can bring to bear. And yet we sort of go, brilliant, they're through the door, let's go find the next one. <laughs> yes, and to think that by that point, um, you know very little about them. And you've only seen them in an interview capacity, which some people are very excellent at, you know, smoke and mirroring that process. Um, Particularly if you've not, as you said earlier, thought about the hiring process and done yeah, something robust. Exactly. So I find it fascinating how we just... You know, we immediately often trust and then remove all that trust because they're not set up to succeed, um, but are or also brought into a system that is built on lack of trust. So there's lots of process. But yeah, I, I always find it fascinating how, okay, three, five, whatever interviews, check, 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 mm-hmm. 
offered a job, we're going to pay money, go for it, go run, you know, mm-hmm. run that team, run that, that project. Um, so often not set up for mm. success. And I think you're totally right. And it's, it's funny because when you look at the investment that's made up front, yeah. and then when it comes to the final hurdle, yeah. and I see that as the final hurdle, because people think the final hurdle is getting them to yes. I think the final hurdle is getting them to Perform. commit for life, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, and just exactly. be like, this is amazing, my life yeah. is closer. You, you want to, particularly if you're in a fast growth scenario where you're going to need to recruit a lot more people (laughs) if you can uh, empower them with some with a love of the company and some great messages that they can take out to really push that employer brand you're also saving yourself a lot of time and money on recruitment and potential bad hires so the ROI on a really thorough and onboarding process is really big very much yeah very much and it's it's something that you know I continually I think people don't really know what onboarding means. When you say the word, some people Here's think... Here's a computer. <laughs> exactly. Or like, here's how you make coffee in this... The you know, whatever barista. Exactly. Yeah. But onboarding for me, I actually have to split it in a lot of clients. And like, there's the top level onboarding, which is computer. Please make sure they have a computer. Uh, please make sure they have a place to sit. Please make sure that their team knows that they're starting today. Um, please make sure their manager knows that they're starting today because that's great. not if you can avoid the, the given. Yeah. <laughs> you work here um, and then there's the deeper level onboarding which is so much more important which is what are they expected to be doing in the first week two weeks month second month third month what kind of feedback do you want to glean from them because of their perspective because so quickly they will be one of you mm-hmm. and you will lose that window of opportunity like you said where you can get a fresh pair of eyes to look at things objectively um, but yeah, a lost opportunity on and on and on and on again. Um, so in your opinion, what do you think makes a great onboarding process? Well, I think the way you've broken it down makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, the practical stuff, which sounds so obvious, and yet time and time again, not hear there. stories, <laughs> exactly. People showing up... Um, with no equipment, yeah. with no idea that they're coming. And this is not just startup. I this just want to make that clear. Absolutely. It is consistent across the board. Absolutely. I think we like to imagine that at some point in our organizational life cycles, we reach a state of maturity where these things just don't happen. And, um, and that's just not the case. Um, I think, yeah, practically, um, those sorts of things help. Mm-hmm. I think when you're bringing people on, in on, on tranches if yeah. you can find ways to foster ties and connections between these classes as you were I yeah. think that's really really like powerful for them when there's so many new people and they're having a bit of a sense of connection yeah um, obviously taking them through culture codification so they really understand yes um, what the company is all about you'd hope they did already <laughs> um, but it's worth just what you can read about and then what you experience exactly yeah. and and then you know it really gets into um, your personal preference as it were as a company you know there are lots of things um, from buddying systems to regular check-ins in the first few months just to make sure things are going well I mean it takes on average about six months for people to really settle into a new yes. role and I think People forget that. You need to write that down, everyone. Yeah, (laughs) six months, people. (laughs) It does. And and I think there's sometimes slightly um, unhelpful expectations about the the first month or so. Um, People don't 
create a ton of value in terms of often their day-to-day work during that period so which is why you know as we both sort of mentioned now and just once more for reinforcement um (laughs) when they're not able to create tons of value in their role use them to create the value that they can provide really well and which is that fresh pair of eyes and that why do you do it this way and particularly if you're bringing in smart people Mm. you know smart people like to ask why so take the time to to listen to the responses yeah that's so true and i think you know we got here because we were talking about the impact on culture and how hiring people can make or break really a strong culture and you know what's your perspective on so you you might even hire the right people but your onboarding process can throw them so out of whack Mm -hmm. that they end up getting the wrong kind of perception I think Mm -hmm. Um, so what's your perspective on you know the tie between you've done all this great work um, with the, the leadership team and and you know everyone's engaged on the mission and vision but they haven't put that effort into onboarding. Mm-hmm. How does it all break down? I think a clearly accountable person or people yeah. um, is really important. Um, it's not always the case that there's a fully formed HR function yeah. or a talent function yeah. uh, or maybe even marketing function in really early stage product driven businesses so what ends up happening is it's disjointed and it's not consistent yeah um and just as you know we expect consistent experiences from you know a retail store or mm-hmm. a restaurant that we visit mm-hmm. um, every candidate or newly new hire should be having a relatively consistent experience right so as soon as you charge an individual or a group of individuals with that and make sure that they're accountable not just in terms of on paper but actually to performance Mm. you're automatically hugely increasing your chances of success rather than just leaving it to whoever feels like they have the capacity so that would be my first thing Mm. and I think the second thing is you know approach it like you would uh, customer journey you know what are the steps where can we remove friction um, at each different point along this journey what are they going to be feeling what's the information they're going to need in order to make a decision in order to move forward to the next stage um, and actually that's a great opportunity to bring the product team into it and they can offer some really great insights yeah um, I don't think that this stuff has to be or should be frankly approached in a purely HR mindset it's as it's exactly the same principles. Yeah. Um, and you can learn a lot from, you know, a great UX uh, person on, on, on how to make that candidate experience as seamless and as, as pleasurable as possible. Yeah, totally. So where does culture land? Where, who's responsible for culture? Everyone's responsible for culture. Yeah. But I think ultimately there's responsible in the sense of, you know, articulating it and writing it down. But the micro actions on the day-to-day can be done by anybody but yeah. I think leaders shouldn't take everyone being responsible for culture <laughs> as, a as way to an excuse wash that my hands off it. yeah. that's not my problem ultimately right. if we as humans see people behaving in a way that is inconsistent with their words yeah. it doesn't matter how beautifully codified your culture is if you are unable to walk the walk mm. um, as you've set out mm-hmm. Uh, then there's no way as a leader you're going to foster a a really authentic, meaningful kind of culture. And that is actually incredibly important. And I talk about this quite a lot, you know, with our clients and with the venture funds that we work with, which is 
that values action gap is um, however you can bridge that is super important. So, for example, you know, a lot of founders um, are multi-talented and mm-hmm. enjoy getting their hands dirty in different aspects of the business. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to relinquishing control, even gradually, they can really struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, on the one hand, we, we get you know people who might say autonomy is super important to me i want every person to be a a leader to be proactive take decisions you know take risks and fail and yet the micromanagement is intense and there's often you know people come in and wrestling tasks off each other so on the one hand we're saying go forth and 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 i trust you yeah you know that's and on the other hand everything you're doing contradicts that yes and have, in your experience, are they aware of that? Because in mine, they're not. I'm, I think we at Multiple are extremely fortunate that most of the clients we work with are often second-time founders or experienced yeah. founders. Yeah. And many of them have learned the hard way yeah. um, from their first or second startups that if you, you cannot scale a business, if you cannot scare yourself it's you ego right your ego will get in the way yeah I think it's also an experience too I think yeah. there's a it's often fear driven you know you don't want to let people down you yeah. don't want to let your investors down your team down you often lots of very well meaning founders who want to take some of the pressure off the team mm-hmm. or perhaps compensate for people who are a bit nervous because they don't have experience yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's not always from a control freakery standpoint um, though that definitely exists um <laughs> It's often quite well-meaning, but the problem with that is it's it's bad for you, it's bad for the business, and it's bad for the person. Mm-hmm. They're denied the opportunity to grow, the business is denied the opportunity to grow, and you as a leader are denied the opportunity to grow. So it kind of fails everybody on all fronts, really. Totally. But we're very lucky that generally most of our clients um, come to work with us because they're quite enlightened and self-aware. <laughs> you are a lucky group of people. We are very fortunate. <laughs> Multiple families, pretty great family. <laughs> Um, well, I, I'm sure that's you know an attri- a, a testament to the culture you guys have built yourself because you know like follows like, and I think that's another thing that a lot of people uh, don't associate culture with is actually the kind of partnerships and community that a business forms around them will also be value driven. Um, so it's very important to walk the talk or whatever that talk you decide it to be. Um, to to finish off. Um, you wrote a really great piece um, on Medium on culture and related it to um, sports. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I'll link out, um, I'll link your article in the newsletter. Um, yeah, give some insight or you know, high level on, on um, you know, what it, was it about and and the impact it's had. Um, so the piece I wrote. Uh used fitness as an analogy mm-hmm. for culture. And the reason why I chose fitness is because for me and, and the way we think about it at Multiple is culture should help you become a high, as high-performing business. Yes. Yeah. It, is, it's the, it should be, um, therefore, highly subjective according to what your version of success looks like. And I think that's really crucial because it's easy for us to kind of go back a bit to run around whether it's speaking different languages or living in different countries assuming we all have the same idea of what success looks like yes and it's often not until you get a group of people around a table that you realize that everyone's got quite different ideas so depending on whether you're trying to 
train to become a sumo wrestler or a gymnast or a rower, you are going to go about training and eating and sleeping in in very different ways. Mm -hmm. And one of the points uh, I often make in relation to this is when people say, what does good culture look like? How do I know if it's great? And it really depends on what kind of purpose you're trying to fulfill. So for me, fitness is a good metaphor on that front, but it's also good because... You don't get fit overnight, unfortunately. Yeah. I've, 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 I think there's a fairly substantial number of businesses that are trying to sell that uh, idea <laughs> and doing quite well sometimes. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you decide you want to turn it all around, it's no good just going on one massive run. Yeah. You know, you need to do a little bit, maybe not every day, but certainly regularly. Yes. And so often really well-intentioned uh, leaders who are under a lot of pressure suddenly get it into their head that now is the time to deal with it. Yeah. They'll undertake one big endeavour and then nothing really comes of it. And I think building upon that initial enthusiasm and helping to create systems by which it's, it's codification, it's processes, it's internal communications that will enable that great work up front to continue is really powerful. It's just the same thing with fitness, right? Which mm. is, it's no good going to, you know... Uh, some sports store and investing in all the lycra and the best trainers if you haven't got a plan for how you're actually going to get to the point yeah. where, you know... Where you don't fit in it. Exactly. <laughs> well, there's that too. And there's, if you want to train for a marathon, it's not something uh, ideally you should just do overnight. Rock up and, yeah. Um, I mean, you can do if, if you're particularly gifted in that benefit. And that's the point. One of the things that's, that makes this uh, often something that's delayed is in the early stages... We're often quite blessed as companies because you've got a group of people around a vision that's communicated all the time mm. because of the proximity of to the leadership yeah. and, and yeah. yeah, you're handful you're of living people and breathing living, it. Exactly, yeah. you're handful of people in a small room living and breathing it every day. So you don't really need to and it's a bit like, you know, when we're younger we don't really need to think that much about yeah. staying fit and healthy. Yeah, but yeah. like with age, sadly it happens to the best of us and with any organisation as you develop, um, the natural uh, inheritance that you had will start to break down, however robust it yes. is. Yeah. And I think um, where you can attend to it little and often, where you can create conditions, like with lifestyle, that are going to make it easier for you to succeed, mm-hmm. then that's something that you should really do sooner rather than later. Yes. Rather than wait until you've broken your leg or you have, an, in the case of a company, you know, a terrible churn rate. Yeah. Um, that constantly being turned down then you know be preemptive about it I love that analogy so I think yeah for everyone listening it's about culture is about doing a little bit not necessarily every day but regularly and often to reinforce kind of the bigger mission and vision and make sure that it's all tied together and actionable and yeah, I love that analogy between fitness because it's so I think everybody can relate to that and go I think anybody who has realised that it's been several weeks since they went to the gym, <laughs> uh, knows that feeling. Yeah. And again, like the value action gap, you can care about something, but not necessarily do a huge amount about it. And yes. at some point, saying that you care is going to stop meaning anything. That is a perfect way to close up. I think that, yeah, very impactful, and I'm hoping that lands with a lot of people listening. Um, so make sure that you, yeah, take action to what you're seeing, or walk 
the talk, <laughs> as they say. Um, thank you so much, Abby, for having um, for being one of our guests. Uh, it was pleasure. a pleasure to chat to you. And I hope you're on again sometime. Thanks very much. Okay.